Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a wet and windy autumn afternoon here in the capital is Rosie Peters. Rosie is the deputy head teacher at Wendell Park Primary School, a two-form entry school in Greater London with over 450 students and approximately 50 members of staff. Uh, Rosie, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, Rosie, pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. It might not be the nicest day for it, but we're all inside, fortunately, so we're out of the uh, the wind and rain. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, um, at this point in the, uh, the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel that it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle, because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it? But considering the major disruption that it's caused to the education sector. For yourselves as a primary school, just how have you coped over the last few months? Well, to be quite honest, um, we've, we've, we've been coping quite well. Um, when you consider that over overnight, pupils, teachers and parents had to adapt so quickly to so many different changes and so many different challenges. We've had the challenges of homeschooling, online learning, dealing with technology, um, for example, having Zoom meetings, all the things that we thought we wouldn't be able to do. Um, but we have coped really well. And, and I think that's mainly through um, understanding our, our community and being aware of you know, each of our stakeholders and being able to have open conversations and being able to support where support has been needed. Um, there's been so many changes that we've had to consider, for example, as a leader, just keeping up to date with government guidelines that come out every day, making sure that we are supporting our parents. Um, we are often the first um, port of call um, with things like isolation mm. and so on, you know, making sure that um, parents are really clear about the expectations regarding homeschooling and whether a child has to isolate or not liaising with the health protection team. There's so much that's involved. And I think that, um, you know, behind the scenes, looking at, um, you know, tapping into our, into our parents and, and making sure that, for example, with homeschooling, um, online learning, you know, the technology, do children have the access to devices? Um, do they have parents that can support them? So it's been, it's been a challenge. But I, as I said, we've been able to cope really well. Um, we've been able to support where, for example, looking at school um, during the, the closure, where we had to look at um, children being supported, for example, with meals and so on, and being able to identify pupils who needed, say, for example, school vouchers and um, meal vouchers. Um, so, again, knowing the community really well, um, we've been a school, I think, we've been able to support um, in a way that made some, some of the challenges into successes. And thinking about just um, how many ramifications the pandemic has had for mental health and well-being as well, just how important 
important has it been sort of managing that from not just a staff perspective but also the pupils as well during this time I can imagine that's been a significant challenge Absolutely. And um, well, staff well-being, pupil well-being has been high on our agenda. So we've had our staff trained in that field. Um, some of the um, insets that we've had in the summer term at the beginning of September as well. Um, we focus very much on that because we know that the mental well-being of, of our children is it's really important that we're able to manage that. And we've seen, you know, some children really having anxieties where they've had separation anxieties coming back into school after being away from school for almost six months. Um, some sort of um, behaviours and, uh, well, mental sort of form of behaviours that we've seen have not manifested before. But now, because children have been away from school for, for quite some time, um, we, we've seen and we've, we've been able to um, make sure that we've had our staff trained so that we can support the children. And it's really important that we listen. Um, with staff, we've talked about looking out for certain signs. And again, with the training, we're able to, to um, recognize those signs more readily and and staff feel that they're able to cope and able to support in a better way. We have our art therapists on board. We have play therapists. So there's a lot that we've put in place because we know that the impact um, COVID has had on, on many of our children with their mental health, but also um, financially as well, because we know mm. that being from a diverse community, we, we know that COVID has affected um, a large number of our of the Spain population have been affected disproportionately mm. in comparison to other communities. And again, it's supporting parents in in in, in a way showing that we do understand um, the inequalities that exist, and we do understand that um, that some of the experiences that they're going through. So we can empathise and support in the best way possible. And it's a challenge, those inequalities, isn't it? They have been laid bare by the uh, the pandemic. And when we see that sort of remote provision of learning, particularly from home, isn't a one size fits all approach, it's that inequality that is a root cause of that. Because um, a lot of youngsters out there may not have access to the same online resources as some of their peers. They may not have access to the same devices to be able to access those online resources. So those are all issues that do have to be taken into consideration, don't they? And thinking about having to grapple with all of those issues over the year, the last few months. Is there anything positive that you can say that you've actually learned from having to deal with all of this yourself in your own leadership role? I think what I've learned is that um, how once you've got a strong community and a, a staff where they feel valued, how quickly um, they, they, they can rally around. And I've definitely seen that with, with the staff at Wendell Park. Um, they rallied around in making sure, for example, the first thing we did before lockdown was to do an audit mm. um, of, of all the children to see who had access to technology, who didn't have access. Um, so that was done very, very quickly. Before we knew it, we had a spreadsheet of children who we knew would require devices. We were able to tap into different funds um, to make sure that children had um, devices sent from the school, um, either given or actually loaned um, from the school. And um, through that, we're also able to um, have a you know support parents, for example, who didn't feel that were confident using some of the devices. So again, with having such a strong community and a, a, and a community really 
that, that are really strong with our with our moral purpose and our values. We're able to have um, teaching assistants, for example, and members of staff every week going out with um, with hard copies of work for children because we listen to to our parents. Some of them were finding it very difficult, although they had the online devices, they were finding it difficult to to access. So mm. for some parents, for example, they don't, may not have English as a first language. Um, so on a weekly basis, we were called, you know, the, the stormtroopers who were going out there, mm. some amazing members of staff going out every week with, with hard copies of work and delivering, doing doorstop deliveries um, to parents. And so that every child, we did whatever we could to make sure that every child had access to um, education, whether it was blended, whether it was online, whether it was, you know, through delivering work um, to families. And it's just staggering, isn't it, just to what extent the education sector has really been a leader and a pioneer in its own communities during this time. And that has been laid bare by all of this. And one thing that we have seen as well that we've sort of briefly touched on already is the fact that the education sector has also been required to adapt to very short notice and very often changing guidelines. Now, In the run-up to schools being reopened again in September, there was a lot of furore over those guidelines and whether or not they were clear, whether or not they were essentially credible, whether it was possible to put all of these procedures in place. But considering that schools are now back and things are starting to kind of settle down a little bit and take shape, has that changed? Is it now easier to sort of act in compliance with those guidelines and they're sort of perceived as being a little bit clearer than they were? Or is it a little bit more complicated than that? It is, it is complicated and guidelines are changing all the time. And I think that as a school, school community, we have got used to that. And I think um, because everyone, as I said before, we, 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 it all comes down to the values of the school. And I think once the staff know that it's in the interest of um, individuals, it's in the interest of making sure that our children get the education that they need, um, we've been able to really cope with it. So changes that have come about, everyone has just pulled together and we've made sure that um, those changes are in line. Again, certain things we may think, actually, is this really important for us to do? And if we do, we, you know, I think being a leader is being able to filter out what is key and what's important and being able to, to deliver on those things. There may be certain things that we think, well, actually, this is not going to have an impact on our children, on our staff, safety-wise or in, in, other, in, in, in any other domain. So sometimes we've been able to filter out the key things that are important and making those changes. Um, so as I've said, you know, it's been quite a task, but we've, we've risen to it. Timetabling has been a real, what can I say, a real challenge. Um, we've had staggered starts to the day, staggered end to the day. We now have four different lunch halls to deliver, to, to serve our lunches. So there's been a lot that we've had to do, but I think because, um, you know, we involve every staff member, the cleaners are, are crucial. We know that cleaners, site managers, school business manager, everyone has their role to play. And I think because everyone feels valued, we've been able to um, bring those changes about. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that we do have some of our staff members and our pupils who are from the BAME community. So it's been able to make sure that they feel that, um, you know, they're not at risk. So we've done individual risk assessments um, for staff and making sure that they're, you know, they feel that they're listened to. And 
that we're able to listen in the sense of, you know, what do they think that we could put in place? Because we've got government guidelines, of course, but it's listening to the individuals and listening to what their fears may be or, you know, um, knowing what their requirements are. And once you give them a space to say, actually, you know, could we have this in place or I'd feel more comfortable if everyone was wearing masks within the school setting, although at one point that wasn't um, the case for, and it's still not the case for primary, um, for primary schools, but listening to our staff community and Mm. that being a requirement, then we felt that, okay, this decision has to be made. Um, And then we made our decision and, and everyone bought into it. So I think, you know, it's, it's knowing your, your school community is valuing each voice and each individual. I think that's very important because um, that sort of collaboration is um, incredibly vital during a time like this. We need to obviously make everybody aware that their voices are heard because leadership is ultimately about the collective. It's not just about any one person or a select sort of group of people leading everything. It's about the whole community, particularly when it comes to schools and education. So that sort of collaborative form of leadership, making sure everybody's voices and opinions are heard and valued, that is something certainly to be admired. And just before we do um, wrap things up on the uh, the show this afternoon Rosie because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time um, over of course the year uh, the next year um, it's going to be a quite a challenging time we know that we have quite a difficult winter to get through first and foremost before we can think of the long-term future and even then it's quite difficult to look too far ahead just given how uncertain the current landscape is but if we could pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and look maybe 12 months ahead from now where ideally would you like the Wendell Park Primary School community to be by then? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the next few months in your bid to bridge some of these inequalities? I think, um, in you know, what we're really excited about is um, in light of the new educational framework, um, there's a big focus on curriculum. So we're mm. really focusing on um, creating an inclusive curriculum where every child feels represented. Um, we're looking at, for example, at the moment, we're looking at the black curriculum. Um, and as I said earlier on, in light of COVID, we know that a high percentage of, um, BAME, of our BAME community has been um, affected disproportionately. So it's looking at representation within the curriculum. For example, we're looking at our history curriculum and making sure that you know, black history is part is a part and parcel of the whole British um, curriculum history that we that we are um, developing at the moment. So it's making sure that takes place. Um, so that's very very exciting for us. And I think that you know, children they need to see themselves within the curriculum. They need to see themselves in every aspect of school life. And we're really aiming for that because. Once that happens, you know, regardless of the child, of, of any sort of protected characteristics, if children see themselves in all aspects of, of school life, they're able to capitalise on the full power of education. And in that sense, meaning that, um, you know, education has the power to change lives. And we need to be able to make sure that children have a sense of belonging. So I think developing the curriculum is something very exciting for us, making sure um that our children have access to the best education, whether that's um, through online learning, whether it's in school or whether it's through blended learning, whatever it is, um, it's important that the children have the opportunity to find their passion, their talents and to thrive academically um, so that they have fantastic life chances. And as I've said, regardless of their background, it's, you know, that's 
the, the key for us as a school, um, wanting everyone to, to, to thrive academically and, and have bright futures ahead of them. So the curriculum I'm excited about, definitely. And hopefully there'll be some really positive news to share about the curriculum over the course of the year, the next few months. And I actually think, Rosie, just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the show this afternoon, that it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next few months and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along and how that vision is really starting to bear fruit. Perfect. That's, that sounds fantastic. Thank you. I'd really welcome that opportunity and I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves this afternoon, Rosie. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this COVID situation yet. But let's just keep our fingers crossed and stay positive that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. I did hear that. I totally agree with that. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And do, um, as I say, um, I, I would love to extend that um, a well wish to all of the community at Wendell Park Primary School as well, Rosie, for sure. Everybody do stay well, do stay safe and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. And I'd also like to extend that to all of the listeners that are tuning into this afternoon's podcast. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.